You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 27th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. The United States is compelled once again to confront the consequences of police brutality, the imminent shortage of South Koreans, and what does Ukraine still need? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our mostly in-house daily. I'll be joined by Chris Lord, Tom Webb and Laura Kramer. Plus, we'll have Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. And I'll meet Olena Halushka from the International Centre for Ukrainian Victory. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Monocle 24 producer Laura Kramer and Monocle 24's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb. Hello to you both. Um, is, this, is this the first time you've both been on the Daily together? Because you are both relatively new arrivals here at Monocle 24. So we arrived at the same time, actually, Tom and I. And we've been on the Daily before together. So, but with a different presenter, it was Georgina, who insisted on us bowing to her. I can't even get into it. <laughs> it was actually a huge success, which is why we're back. Damn, I wish I'd thought of the whole bowing thing. Next time. There's, there's always next time. If, indeed, there is a next time. Um, <laughs> and that may be contingent on how the light introductory banter component of the program goes. Uh, Tom, we were discussing uh, upstairs earlier the fact that you had been at some sort of mime event? Yeah, see, it's already going badly because you're wincing as you say mime event. I I am. I I went to the International Festival of Mime at the Barbican in central London. I went to Still Life, colon, Flesh, which was four Belgians performing out four very, very strange scenarios within the human cycle of life, which includes wearing a VR headset and reenacting the entire story of the Titanic. That's James Cameron's <laughs> Titanic with Rose and Jack. Sorry, I'm, I'm a bit lost here. If, if, this was, if they were miming while wearing a VR headset, were you actually able to see any of the Titanic thing or were you just having to take their, well, not even their word for it, their mime for it, yeah. that they could actually see any of this? Yeah, there were sound effects. So there were splashes and there was the, the other flute from the famous song, My Heart Will Go On. And there was also the recreation of the sex scene in the carriage. Like all in the medium of mime? In the medium of mine, yeah. I, I'm, I'm tempted to give our studio manager, Tamsin, a bit of a conniption now by saying, and I believe we have some audio of that. <laughs> <laughs> we don't, we don't. Uh, which, of course, see, the whole gag would then that we would just do like 10 seconds of total silence. So, yeah, that, that would be... <sighs> Honestly. Um, Laura, are you able to keep up with this? Have you been at or are you planning to attend anything that could remotely compare with four Belgians in VR headsets miming James Cameron's tights? See, right there you have almost precisely, Tom, described my idea of hell. That, that's what it will be like. It will be an eternity of watching four Belgians miming Titanic. I would like to actually up the ante. What about a bunch of really sweaty people in spandex 
pumping each other up with like enthusiasm and positivity. No, that's worse. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Because that's what I did this the, earlier this week. I did that with Emma Nelson. We went to the spin class and we have not shut up about it. Mostly because we want to brag. Like, look at us. We're exercising in this really fit spin class. But it was horrific and the man killed us. And we have been sore all week. And she's going again on Sunday. But I have been avoiding talking to Emma Nelson. Like, if she's texting me, I'm like, oh, so busy because I can't go again. He wrecked me. Okay, well, we are going to need our listeners at this point to imagine an absolutely anguished gear change uh, as we go from light introductory banter to an actually extremely serious news story. And we will go to the United States, which is braced for another bout of protests, blame apportioning and or soul searching following another brutal interaction between a citizen and police officers. On January 7th, a 29-year-old man called Tyree Nichols was pulled over by police in Memphis. Nichols died three days later of injuries apparently sustained from a protracted beating by five Memphis officers. Body cam video of the incident is due to be released imminently, but the five officers have all been dismissed from the Memphis force and now face charges of second-degree murder, among other offences. I'm joined with more on this from Los Angeles by Monocle's US editor Chris Lord. Um, Chris, do we expect a different response to this as opposed to previous high-profile police brutality cases Uh, President Joe Biden has been notably keen to get out in front of this one, uh, reiterating that peaceful protest is perfectly understandable and absolutely fine. Uh, Violence is not. So I think you're going to you're going to see the the kind of response that we've got used to so far. The, the, when the as you mentioned, when the footage is released later today, 7 p.m. local time, it's going to be uh, the expectation is there's going to be. First of all, a great deal of public anger. The family has called for non-violent protests in the wake of this. But in terms of the response of get and getting ahead of this, I think because this has become such a sadly frequent event here in the United States of uh, African-American men being having some kind of altercation or confrontation with police and coming out of it the other end with to have lost their lives, however, whoever blame that may end up with ultimately... I think in this case, because it's become so frequent now that really the authorities and, and Biden and elsewhere and, and the Memphis police itself, if you look at their commentary around this, they recognize the need to get up in front of this as quick as they can. Partly, I think, because, you know, those protests that we've talked about in the past have turned extremely violent. And, you know, Memphis is probably braced for that after seven o'clock this evening, despite those calls from the family. Um, but also, I think there's there's really some anticipation of how bad this video is going to be when it's released. I mean, Benjamin Crump, who's the uh, the attorney who's representing the family, famous, of course, for his involvement in the George Floyd case. You know, he's watched this video already. And in a statement earlier, he you know, he compared it to the 1991 beating of Rodney King here in Los Angeles, which, of course, led to. Uh, you know, months of upheaval in this city. In fact, a, a real bellwether in a relationship between uh, Los Angeles, the citizens and the police force here. Never really recovered, some may say. You know, uh, Crump talks about uh, Ty Nichols being tasered, pepper sprayed, pepper sprayed and, and restrained. Uh, and, and, you know, a beating so poor, that so badly that he, you know, was ultimately hospitalized and then three days later died. So because of that, scale of how bad this potentially could be and how bad this video could be I think there's a need to get in front of it and you know unlike some of these situations that we've seen in the past the narrative is a little bit different here in as much as you know typically we've got sadly very used to a scenario where it's it's an African-American gentleman uh, having an altercation with police who happen to be white now in this situation this isn't this isn't the case here I think there's going to be a lot of 
institutional questions here about the police force there in Memphis. And therefore, there's a need for authorities to move very quickly. And Biden, I think, knows that very deeply. Well, that was a question I wanted to come to, because as you correctly point out, a difference uh, between this and some of the other cases you cited, those of George Floyd and Rodney King, is that in this particular instance, a a black American citizen appears to have been uh, brutalized by black police officers. Is the conversation already beginning to develop that suggests that perhaps the problems there are with American policing go beyond the racial? Uh, to some extent. It's still very early, we have to remember, because there's the, while this did happen on January the 7th, there's been so much build-up now with regards to this video. And I think until that gets released, it's going to be... Uh, that's going to be the sort of point where a lot of these questions are going to start to come in. We're going to start to see exactly what happened on that night because we have to remember that's still quite unclear. There's various versions of events, uh, you know, idea that Ty Nichols sort of, you know, resisted arrest, he ran away, they was pursued and so on and so forth. We don't really, we haven't yet seen exactly how that unfolded. Uh, but I think in terms of the way this is being talked about and the discourse around it, um, you know, I think that there there is a feeling here that, you know, is there a way, is there a, is there a culture that's developed in policing here in the United States that, that in its very essence, regardless of who is doing the policing and what ethnicity they might be, that there is some inherent attitude towards African-American males in the police force up and down this country that creates situations or creates quite simply fear in the minds of police officers that perhaps leads to disproportionate levels of uh, of, 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 of heavy-handedness, I guess you could say, when they deal with individuals who happen to be African-American. This was a, let's be clear here, this was a traffic stop, okay? This hmm. was a reckless driving case, why Ty Nichols was pulled over. Now, to, for that to end in a situation where three days later, in hospital, the, the man dies, suggests an extraordinary level, sequence of events unfolded when they pulled his car over. And I think that there is probably grounds here for a conversation for this to move which we have seen this happen certainly around George Floyd to become about about being African-American in this country and and that that I think is a very important conversation but I think also um, ideas about being African-American the way that transmits into into institutions in this country uh, and and how much you know we were talking about Rodney King how embedded that that question is in the whole idea of American police and I think that's what's going to happen now and it ceases to be just simply a question of of, of black and white it becomes about institutions uh, and about the way that they are um, I, I guess the way they relate to certain members of the community in their cities well, uh, Chris, let's stay in the United States. We will doubtless come back to this story uh, next week and after we've seen how it develops over the weekend. But uh, there is a tech story we need to discuss as well, and this is the fact that the, the footpaths of Silicon Valley have grown thick these last few weeks with mournful figures toting boxfuls of their office ephemera. Uh, we've seen Meta, Google, Amazon and Microsoft announcing massive layoffs. And by one informed guess, there's 200,000 fewer tech jobs uh, than there were this time last year where have they all gone and why have they gone there really good question andrew i mean i think look i'm i'm here in in some to some extent the epicenter of these layoffs here in california uh you know up there in silicon valley it's not a very pleasant place to be right now um and you talked about the scale of it there you know how many hundreds of thousands of jobs you know have been lost but also just this month sixty thousand people have lost their jobs in this sector now there's a few strange bits to this story in a, in a way if you like because Amidst those layoffs, there are still 
companies searching with some anguish for people to work for them. You know, that we are still in <laughs> essentially a labor crisis where there is a dearth of, of people and, and with the skills needed to do the kind of jobs that people are after. What I think is interesting, you mentioned in your when you were in your question about this idea of cardboard boxes and people walking out of buildings. Of course, this recession isn't unfolding like previous ones. You know, that's that's the image classically of what a recession looks like is, you know, hundreds of people, or in this case thousands, walking out of their you know, their offices with, with all their, with their sort of, you know, their trinkets and stationery and so on in a cardboard box. We have to remember the whole structure of tech has changed so, uh, so profoundly in the last few years, where so much of the sector and so many workers are, are only finding out they've lost their jobs because they're sat in Boise, Idaho or Salt Lake City working for a Californian company, but having worked remotely, they're only finding it out by not being able to log on to do their normal thing, get onto Slack and start talking to their colleagues. So there hasn't isn't that face-to-face interaction. And dare I say, you know, I think the big story here that's going to unfold really is as as these layoffs, because this, this hasn't stopped yet, as more of these layoffs happen, the big story here I think is going to be the aftermath of a lot of these cities. You know, San Francisco, if you head up there right now, what happened is that, you know, to all these tech companies, Salesforce, great example, they, you know, lots of huge prime real estate was snapped up by them over the last decade. Lots of big buildings, either built or acquired, floors and floors of office space, which have, since the pandemic, in lots of cases, sat empty. And it's hollowed out the centre of San Francisco. Just before the end of the year, 30% almost of office space in San Francisco was vacant. And I think what we're finding here is there's a situation that the whole the structure the center cannot hold if you like after so long of remote work being part of uh, the structure of these companies i think there's just a realization that this can't carry on and while lots of these jobs are disappearing i just think that that, Im- that important difference of how recessions happen before that it's not people walking out of their out of their offices it's finding out from remote locations that whole structure is being unpicked, I think, of remote work. And that's what that's what the underlying trend happening here is. Chris, a, a question related to that. Is there an aspect of this which is just a natural enough, I guess, return to something approaching normality after the pandemic, during which uh, tech, for obvious reasons, i.e. a sudden reliance on tech for people to be able to live their lives, um, led to a huge upsurge in expansion and a huge upset upsurge in hiring it was one of the few boom sectors during the pandemic yeah so they had to hire in vast numbers during the pandemic to meet this increased demand uh, there's a few corrections going on here that is that is part of it that a lot of these companies did become bloated fa- frankly and in terms of the workers that they had uh, and as sad as it is to see people losing jobs that some of these were obviously going to come down the line when the whole um calculation started to change now we're in a sort of post-pandemic situation but i think also and certainly not the first stage but there have been years and years of cheap money interest rates have been so low and so many of so much of this industry was built on those low interest rates you know companies that spent years trying to become profitable and never did still managed to keep hiring and not just hiring but acquiring the kind of assets i was just talking about in terms of office buildings in uh, downtown locations and vast business parks on the outskirts and so on, all that kind of asset building that happened on borrowing. And I think now we find ourselves in a situation as interest rates track up, 
The dollar is having, for the first time in a long time after being very, very overheated, is starting to have a trickier moment. Uh, stocks also, similar thing. The economy is good here in America, but there is a correction happening right now in the whole structure of the way these companies were established and built up. And I think, you know, I, I, I do believe that the, the key correction here is that there is a growing feeling amongst these entrepreneurs and the, the, the CEOs up there in Silicon Valley that actually remote work is not translating into the kind of, if you like, dex dexterity that you need to pivot. If you've got people out in the field, uh, you know, working alone on, on computers all day and logging on just on Slack and so on, can you have that same kind of relationship with them where you're able to pivot very quickly if times change? And I think that's really what's coming back here. And, I, you know, there is, there is a great, there is a great um, reset, I think, happening. And there will be another boom of tech, I'm sure of it. I'm, I'm sure tech will recover, but it will be a different kind of tech. And I think that the the, the days of move fast and break things, the, the mantra of Facebook as it was then known or now Meta, you know, that that is really, I think, starting to shift because you're entering a situation where that cheap money is not as plentiful as it once was. And really that, that correction is going to be painful, but it, it was it was always going to need to happen. Chris Lord in Los Angeles, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily with me, Andrew Muller. Let's bring Laura and Tom back in. And we will go to South Korea, which has become the world's least reproductive nation. There is not exactly a shortage of South Koreans now. There are around 52 million of them. But if they maintain their current indifference towards creating further South Koreans, they could be as few as 20 million by the turn of the century. And according to one survey, fully 65% of South Korean women and 45% of South Korean men don't want children. Um, Laura, first of all, does this strike you as a peculiarly, um, distinctively South Korean thing, or, or are they at the leading edge of a fairly global phenomenon? I think that's it's exactly the latter. We heard earlier this year that China's population has shrunk for the first time, with India now being the most popular, populous nation. Uh, recently, we saw the J Japanese prime minister talk about how Japan uh, needs to is on the brink and they need to do something now or never. And even in America, it's it's a falling birth rate. I think it's just something that is very common. We're seeing it in many Western countries. I mean, Tom, this does always prompt a certain amount of existential angst among governments, uh, South Korea and Japan, obvious examples of it. Should it be a job of the government to encourage greater population or should the government's job be not to tell people how many children they should or shouldn't have and just do their best to look after the ones that are here? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think the government does have a responsibility because the government have proved that, that initiatives have worked. Um, if you look at China, uh, they don't have very good uh, sort of a gender equality in households and workplaces. In Scandinavia, they had a problem with fertility, so they increased their gender equality led by the government, and that boosted the birth rate. And Japan have been also, they've got incentive, government incentives, and in, it's sort of uh, including IVF, paying for uh, IVF for the people with lower incomes. Without government in intervention, these people would not be able to have children. So it is important, particularly for financial reasons. Uh, Laura, for obvious reasons, this is a decision which ends up being substantially made by 
women. And is it also the case that this is just a product, we've seen this all across the world where there has been widespread female emancipation, which, lest we forget, is a relatively recent innovation in the human experience. But the more opportunities that are made available to women, the less inclined they are to have lots of children. That's right. And the more educated women are, the more mm. the less likely they are also to have many children. So it's definitely one of the factors, but it's, you know, ve- stating the very obvious, it's not one of the reasons that we should stop educating women. <laughs> and and I think that is one of the worries as we see more panic about from different populations. Uh, one of the worries is you don't want there to be encroaching laws that start to somehow creep up on stopping the advancement of women, whether it's in education, in the workforce, or indeed having rights over their own bodies and their health care. Mm-hmm. And that is a very serious issue when we see you know, things like in America with abortion access and everything else like that. So it is definitely something that's happening. But, you know, I think cost of living is obviously a very big problem and so is the cost of child care and we're seeing that uh, traditionally female jobs which were let's say you know taking care of the kids until they're old enough to go off to school uh, they're not very well paid or they're very expensive for people to take in, in the UK for example a journalist was talking about how much it would cost her to take her kid to ch- uh, to nursery and it would be approximately um, 18,000 part-time. 18,000 pounds part-time, full-time, almost 30,000. It is an insane cost, and it is something that countries really have to look at. If we're talking about a government involvement, that's definitely one of the areas. And also, I think, in, in other parts, specifically South Korea, where this article that we were looking at about the falling birth rate is also looking at you know chauvinistic aspects mm. of different societies and how to tackle very old-rooted beliefs about the role of men and women but but also it's not just to follow that up Laura it's it's when i say it's a decision that gets made substantially by women we should also emphasize it's a decision that gets made for equally fundamental reasons by relatively young women um is it also the case that whatever government incentives are provided it's the thing where when you balance the vastly increased opportunities now available to young women measured against child rearing uh, one is fun and exciting and rewarding and the other one looks boring stressful and expensive absolutely i mean i think about me and my journalist friends we've worked in different countries we've studied in different places um just the other day i had a few too many glasses of wine and i booked a trip to glasgow and i told my friend about it i thought oh how fun it was really good no reflection on the qualities of glasgow it's perfectly (laughs) perfectly imaginable that people stone cold sober would decide i want to go to glasgow (laughs) that's right and my friend who i was telling her about this silly decision uh she has two kids and she kind of said the snide comment to me "Mm, must be nice and I thought that was so strange, but but she's right. She doesn't have that luxury to just up and go to Glasgow because she had a few too many drunk drinks and made a dumb decision. And and the truth is, we are loving the freedoms that come with that. That millennial mm. women, younger women, love that. So yeah, child re- rearing is a lot. And we are still in different societies, even in the Western countries, where people still make jokes. Oh, you went out tonight? Oh, did, did Tom babysit? Well, no, Tom is the father of the children. Mm. <laughs> Why is he the babysitter? <laughs> so, uh, this this, some... Yeah, this is a trend that we're also seeing in Taiwan. They're seeing bringing up children is too expensive and stressful. So they are now buying these beautiful pets, these fluffy dogs, which have now outnumbered children. Uh, a, a new statistic said three million 
dogs have been bought, and that's more than children under 15. And if you see a pram out in Taipei, it's more than likely there's a dog in it than a baby. Okay, that's that's getting a bit weird. Oh, but I, I get it, because, you know, children are stressful, dogs relieve stress. So it's a nice balance. <laughs> but th- that being the case, Tom, and just a final thought on this, should it actually be the job of governments fundamentally to encourage this? Or as more and more people, especially in developed economies, decide they cannot be doing with it to the point that it becomes an extreme minority pursuit, um, should governments just get around to thinking, well, OK, if it's something you want to do, it's up to you, but you're going to have to pay for it? Yeah, I think so. Talking about Taiwan, the model that I stumbled into that seems to work that's not government related, it was popping up love hotels. Love hotels are a space that you can check in for a few hours with your loved one. There's a clue in the name. There's a clue in the name. (laughs) But this isn't a government intervention. This is somewhere that you can stay away from your very busy household. My godmother, she's from Taiwan. Her house is full of her family, and they've told me that they can't procreate in that environment. <laughs> uh, I actually accidentally booked a love hotel because I liked had a jacuzzi in it, and it was a really, really filthy place. Ac- accidentally, Accident. accidentally, no, a, a room with say. a jacuzzi for thirty quid, I couldn't resist. Was it heart shaped? It was. It was heart shaped. Okay, a heart shaped jacuzzi for thirty quid. Now, now, <laughs> now we are talking. Which, which city was this in? Was this in Taipei? This was Taipei. See, I bet you're wishing you'd gone there now instead of Glasgow, aren't you? Probably warmer. Uh, Indeed. So uh, Laura Kramer and Tom Webb, thank you both for joining us on the Monocle Daily. Now, it has been, or so we must earnestly hope, a big week for Ukraine's aspirations of retaking its territory. After an amount of dithering, several of Ukraine's allies finally agreed to dispatch quantities of battle tanks, challengers from the UK, Abrams from the United States, and the long-desired Leopard 2 from Germany, Poland, Finland, Norway, Spain and the Netherlands. Well, earlier I was joined at Midori House by Olena Halushka from the International Centre for Ukrainian Victory. I began by asking her about her visit to London. First of all, let's talk about the reason that you're here. What what has been the purpose of this visit and who have you been seeing? Well, actually, we are here with the International Centre for Ukrainian Victory. So that's an all-female delegation consisting of Ukrainian civil society Uh, female leaders who have been advocating for Ukrainian victory. So we are here in London in order to, first of all, thank British people for incredible assistance, which we are receiving. And in particular, that was the British decision to send Challenger tanks that unblocked the supplies of Western-made tanks by other partner countries. But we are also here to ask for more assistance, which is necessary to win this war and not only to sustain fighting. The tanks were obviously militarily important, but they also struck me as symbolically important. And I was wondering if it seemed that way to you, that this is a demonstration by the Western world, though it's not quite clear who bounced who into giving what. But are you now reassured or do you think Ukraine is reassured that Europe the United States, the wider West is actually all in on this and will give Ukraine what it needs? Uh, Well, in fact, the first official request for the Western tanks by Ukraine was made in March last year. Mm. And ever since we've been engaging in a lot of advocacy activities, negotiations, public events in order to convince that we should get this Western tanks. So this decision is definitely an important symbolic step. 
it opens the door for getting more tanks because right now there is the commitment for around 100 tanks. Mm -hmm. But according to the interview of General Zaluzhny, we need minimum 500 modern tanks in order to be able to not only repel the new offensive which Russia is preparing, but to effectively do the counteroffensive and liberate all of our territories. But we still see that there is block for the certain other types of weapons and the most crucial and important of them are fighter jets, mm -hmm. particularly F-16 and longer range missiles. Because what we've heard just yesterday from the Ukrainian uh, intelligence unit of the Ministry of Defense was that Russia is adjusting their fighting and their supplies activities and they are moving the military bases and the warehouses 100 plus kilometers away from the front line, which means that with the existing capacities, with the existing missiles, we cannot reach these bases and we cannot disrupt their supplies anymore. So we need longer range missiles. Do you get the sense that this is Ukraine's government not thinking only in terms of what it needs to win this war, important though that obviously is, but thinking ahead to what kind of country Ukraine is going to need to be out the other side of this? Because the one irreducible at the heart of all of this is that Ukraine will always be a neighbour of Russia. Is, is Ukraine starting to adjust to the idea that absent some extraordinary change within Russia, Ukraine is going to have to be an extraordinarily militarised and heavily armed country? Well, partly you are right. What we are seeing right now that we are receiving absolutely different types of weapons, like there are more than 10 different types of hovitzers. Mm -hmm. Right now we are receiving, you know, Soviet-made tanks and this three um, Western-made tanks, Abrams, Leopard 2 and Challengers. And obviously this is not a sustainable solution. This is something which we need to fight right now, today, and to win this war. Uh, but obviously in the strategic perspective, we need to get a kind of a unification. And for that, it is incredibly important not only to stick to one type of all of these mm. weapons, Western-made type, but also to be thinking about the joint production with Western partners and also to be thinking about sustainable security guarantees. And as the country who have seen already security, so-called assurances, Budapest Memorandum, mm. when we gave up the third largest arsenal of nukes and received, in fact, almost nothing in exchange. This now, we make the right lessons learned, conclusions, and the only feasible and the only truly effective security guarantee for us would be NATO membership. Mm. Uh, there's another development, recent development in Ukraine I did want to ask you personally about, given your work with the, the Anti-Corruption Action Centre. And this is this apparent purge by President Vladimir Zelensky of 11 officials who have been either sacked or, I think, asked fairly briskly if they wouldn't mind resigning. What have you made of that? And what does that tell us about how much luck Zelensky has had in removing corruption from Ukrainian public life, which obviously 
prior to his election was a huge problem. Ukraine always ranked very poorly in Transparency International's Index of Corruption Perceptions. I know you know this. And I also know that you know that one of the recurring running gags of President Zelensky's sitcom Servant of the People was a determ- you know, th- this idea that Ukrainian public life was hopelessly corrupt and this is how he would change it either in a sitcom or in reality. It's still an ongoing struggle, clearly. Yes, the very fact that these corruption scandals exist itself is not a good news, of course. But I have to point that the way how the state, how the government responds is good. What mm. I mean by that? Uh, first of all, we have to understand that most of these schemes, well, all of them basically, uh, either on their own initiative or upon the investigative journalists, but all of them are investigated by the independent institutions which were established after Maidan, after 2014, Mm -hmm. anti-corruption agencies. That means that, you know, we are in the middle of the genocide, full-scale war, but our anti-corruption agencies, they are effectively fulfilling their core functions fighting against corruption. There was very big boost to the fight against corruption in July last year, when uh, following the granting of EU candidate status for Ukraine, um, we have finally got the appointment of the finalist of the head of one of this institutions, Specialized Anti-Corruption Prosecutor's Office, who made a very big push to all of the investigations. So we have a kind of a paradoxical situation that the more anti-corruption institutions are working, the more perception might be that there is, you know, corruption. But that's only because they are effectively working. The second important pillar is civil society and investigative journalists are doing their job and watchdogging even during the wartime, which is incredibly important, and that's the sign of democracy. And the third important pillar is the way how President Zelensky and the government responded. And the dismissals was a very important first step, and then we will see the results of the official investigations. That was Elena Halushka from the International Centre for Ukrainian Victory speaking to me earlier. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. And finally on today's show, Henry Rees Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. I'm not very good at transit. As a child, I disappointed my father, an avid amateur sailor, with my fear of boats. As an adult, I disappoint my partner with my fear of flying, which looms over what should be the exciting and joyful experience of trip planning. When I was growing up, my nan was terrified of lifts or elevators, as they're called in the US. At the time, I thought her fear was ridiculous and I mocked her mercilessly for it. But as I approach what is statistically likely to be the middle of my life, I can feel an incipient lift phobia taking shape in my cowardly heart. I think this new fear has been catalyzed by my move to NYC, one of the world's great elevator capitals. Good morning. Please stand clear of the closing door. 
At the last official count, using data from the calendar year 2017, there were 84,000 elevators in NYC. The city has 1,570 miles of vertical shaft. Going up. Dwarfing its 840 miles of horizontal subway track. New Yorkers make around 35 million elevator trips every day. Vertical transport is the true lifeblood of this dense city. And there's a rigorous regulatory framework designed to protect it. In accordance with the NYC building codes, elevators must be inspected and tested twice annually. These inspections are performed by a contracted independent agency and are usually unannounced. Despite these protections, the city still has serious elevator issues. Most pressingly, elevators in many of its public housing buildings have fallen into a state of disrepair. A federal report released in November of last year described the city's progress in delivering new elevators to its public housing facilities as dire. Last year, one elevator outage took almost two months to restore. Do not be alarmed. We are experiencing a temporary power interruption. Earlier this month, Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul announced a $300 million plan to replace elevators in the city's public housing. But this will only upgrade about 10% of the ageing elevators in the system, and even that task will only be completed by the end of 2028. This is a serious accessibility concern for disabled New Yorkers living in the city's public housing, as well as elderly residents. And it's not just in the city's public housing that broken elevators pose an accessibility issue. The subway system's elevators have long been criticised for being unclean and unreliable. The performance of the 297 subway elevators controlled directly by the city's transit authority has been improving. But there are 56 subway elevators that are privately maintained by landlords with properties connected to stations. In 2022, 18 of the 20 worst performing elevators in the system were these privately maintained ones. This is in a context where just 126 of New York's 472 subway stations have elevators or ramps to make them fully accessible in the first place. Last June, the city's transit authority announced plans to add elevators and ramps to 95% of the subway's stations by 2055. But that was only after it faced two class action lawsuits over the issue. I'm left in the compromised position of strongly supporting more and better elevators to make New York more accessible, while also cultivating a morbid fear of them. The trend towards automated elevators isn't helping my phobia. Nowadays, I find myself tapping numbers displayed on a touchscreen in elevator lobbies. This tells the building what floor I want to go to. Then, the touchscreen instructs me which elevator car to get into. When I get inside the car, there are no buttons. I'm in a small room with completely smooth walls, at the mercy of the computers. So far, the doors have always opened at the floor I want to go to. But were I to get trapped, I couldn't even soothe myself by frantically hammering on the dozens of buttons that are mounted on the control panel of a traditional elevator. You are pressing too many floor buttons. 
Please press only the floor button required. Advocates say that automated systems improve elevator efficiency by a considerable margin. If you ask me, it's a horrifying vision of the future come to life. I've considered lobbying the city to mandate fake buttons on the inside of automated elevator cars that nervous riders like me might use to pacify themselves. But to be objective about it, I'm not sure the suggestion deserves to make it onto the elevator department's priority list. Please exit when the doors open. Thank you, Henry. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks also to our panellists today, Laura Kramer and Tom Webb and to Chris Lord at the top of the show. The show was produced by Tom and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamentuan. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard with editing assistance from Adam Heaton. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. <laughs>